The following is a resource from the Dwark Hill Study Center. Dwark Hill exists to help Christians take every thought captive to the obedience of Jesus Christ. We hope that you enjoy this lecture. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time. I thank you for these folks who have come out to study your word. Father, who love you, who desire to live Christian lives and to live them Christianly. Father, we pray that you would inflame our hearts with love for you and with love for your word. That you would give us the humility to stand before your word open, ready to be changed where you want to change us. And that, Father, you would give us the courage to live boldly as becomes the followers of Jesus Christ. So, Father, open our eyes this evening, even as we begin just to step into the book of Revelation. Bless it to us, as you have promised, a blessing to its hearers. Bless us now in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this is a class on the book of Revelation. A guy in my church said to me, why are you starting with Revelation? And that's probably a good question. Maybe it's a little crazy to start with Revelation. It's a good question, but I'll tell you why. Because I think that the book of Revelation is the perfect place to start if this is our vision. It's a perfect place to start because what Revelation does, and its purpose, I think, is to tear back reality. That's what, that's what the word Revelation is. It's an unveiling, an uncovering. And so what we're doing when we look at this book, the, Revel the book of Revelation is difficult, but it peels back reality so that we can see things from God's perspective. If we're going to think Christianly, then part of thinking Christianly is to think the way God thinks. And so that's what we're going to do. So let's just think through the contrast of the way the world sees things and the way we see things from the book of Revelation. Maybe you're familiar with the book, maybe you're not, but I'll give you a little preview here. The world, MSNBC... Fox News, CNN, your friends and neighbors. Look around the world and all we see is chaos, right? That's what the world sees when it looks around us. They see chaos. But the book of Revelation shows us a God seated on a throne with in his presence a sea of glass. Perfect peace. That's the vision that we're to lay hold of. That's the vision that Revelation is giving us. The world sees chaos. We see God seated on a throne. The world looks at Jesus. They see a good moral teacher. The book of Revelation shows us Jesus, and we see the Lamb of God slain for his people, standing in all power. The world sees chaos. We see a sovereign God with a sea of glass in front of him. The world sees a good moral teacher. We see the Lamb of God slain for the forgiveness of sins. We see the King of kings and Lord of lords. The world looks and sees natural disasters. Hurricane Sandys, droughts in the Midwest, tsunamis out in Indonesia. That's what they see. We hear the trumpet blast. That's what Revelation says. Revelation is going to expose these things and say, do you really see? Do you really hear? Do you hear trumpet blasts of warning of an even greater judgment? It's not all that we're to say about these things, but it's something. The world looks and sees dignified politicians like Assad in Syria. He always looks so good in the pictures. But Revelation pulls back the veil and exposes him as a beast. But you have to have eyes to see it. The world may see a frail, flawed people, but the book of Revelation shows the church to be the bride of Christ, radiant and destined to inherit the world. 
So as we enter the book of Revelation, one question I have is, what do you see? What lenses are you using when you look at the world? Because it seems like, again, you got two options, right? What's your story? You have the biblical story. You have the biblical lenses by which you can view things. And the book of Revelation is going to be great for this. Or you have the world story. We all have a story. Every one of you is operating with a story. The, the technical big term for this is called a meta-narrative. It's the story behind the story. It's the story that you don't even question. You wake up in the morning and you're just in it. But it, the meta-narrative provides the lens, lenses for you by which you view reality, how you define the characters in your story, how you understand the problems of life and the possible solutions. So let me give you a couple examples of meta-narratives before we think about the great meta-narrative of the book of Revelation. The world's meta-narratives, I'll give you two biggies, two big spheres. I don't know, there's something on here, let's see. Modern and postmodern. Let me give you these two big spheres of meta-narrative. The modernist meta-narrative that came out of the Enlightenment was basically this. There's a God. He created the world. He created the world like a machine and he, like a clock. That was the image of God in the modernist era, right? He's, he's the great clockmaker. And God creates the world and he builds into it physical laws and he, he winds it up with all those physical laws and then he lets it go. And now creation runs on its own. God is unnecessary. God is distant, the deistic image of God. He's far, far away and has nothing to do with the world. Well, if God made the world and he built natural laws into it so that it just runs itself, how do you explain the problems of the world? Well, the modernist said, our story helps us here. The problem is ignorance. We just don't understand how the world works. But at the time of the Enlightenment, it's the Enlightenment after all. The lights are going on. We're beginning to figure out how the world works. So the solution to the problem, if the problem is ignorance, the solution to the problem is education. Give us time. We'll fix all the problems. And the idea of the modernist was that the end goal was inevitable progress. We will progress on and on until we reach some sort of utopia. That was the modernist story. There's some people today that still believe that. Still have a hope that we're going to crunch through all the problems, we're going to progress into some utopia. For the most part, your friends and neighbors don't hold that view. World War I, World War II had something to do with shattering that image, right? The idea that we're going to move on towards some utopia. What we found out is that education didn't solve the problems. Education just helped us be more evil in an educated way, be more creative in our evil, right? So that kind of fell apart. And then we have a postmodern, and there's all kinds of variants of these, but these are the two biggies, a postmodern meta-narrative, which swung the other way, right? A completely different way of viewing the world, said there is no God. Forget the idea of God. We see where that gets us. People use God to exploit people. So we don't, there, no, there's no God. There's no God. There's no creator. We are just a big cosmic accident. That, that's who we are. Right? We're just one big cosmic accident. And there's no purpose and there's no design. You can be whatever you want to be. It doesn't matter because we're not meant to be any particular way. It's one of the reasons we're having all this sexual and gender problems in our culture today. Because after all, look, you can be anything you want because there is no purpose and no design. We, we took the kids when we were up on vacation to go see... Uh, the movie Planes, you know, so we're watching Planes and it's fun and we're laughing. And then at the end of the movie, you know, in, in the movie, you got a crop duster, a dusty crop hopper. And uh, dusty crop hopper, he, he, he wants to be a, a, an air racer. And of course, throughout the movie, he's not an air racer, right? He's a crop duster. Crop dusters don't do air races, but dusty crop hopper does. And he became something he was not designed to be. 
And in the very end, this little car plane mix comes up and says, oh, Dusty Crophopper, you're my hero. You know, you teach us that we don't have to be what we were designed to be. And I'm like, uh-oh. So now I'm the worst, you know, my poor kids. I'm like, now, Andy, here's what this movie's saying, all right? And, and you could be any, and this is how we end up with this and how we end up with things. like, but, Dad, it was just a fun movie. I, so I ruined these things. But that's the postmodern, there's no purpose. There is no design. You want to be an air racer? Fine. You want to be a, a, a crop duster? Fine. You want to be a transgender? Fine. You want to marry another man? Fine. It doesn't matter because there's no design. There's no order. That's the way it goes. Or, thirdly, there's the Christian worldview. The Christian meta-narrative. Our story. The biblical story. We believe that there is a creator, like the deist. But unlike the deist, unlike the modernists, we believe that there is a creator who, though he created remains in and near and through his creation, who upholds it daily, who creates man in his image and establishes a covenant with him and a relationship with him. Well, if the world is created by God, then how do you explain explain the problems? It's not ignorance. We say it's sin. It's rebellion, right? The Christian story has a way to deal with these problems. It's sin. It's rebellion. But the Christian story says that God loves even his sinful world, that our God loves sinners. He doesn't just tolerate sinners. He loves sinners. He actually sends his son to die for sinners. He loves saving sinners. Our God loves forgiving sin. So he loves even his broken, fallen world. He's not going to let it go. And in fact, our story ends, we know, with a God who redeems and restores creation. That's our story. Now, if I asked you what story you believe, again, like like, like the other thing I was saying, we'll all raise our hands and say, I I believe the, the, the Christian story. That's the story I believe. But the problem is we've got to look at our lives, right? Our lives will evidence what story it is we're living. Because we all know Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. The point Paul's getting at here is don't be conformed to the world's story. See, we take Romans 12 too and we say, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world to mean don't do bad things like the world does. They do bad things. They get divorced. They have abortions. They do gay marriage. Don't do that. And we say, yes, yes, we are not. We agree these things are wrong. We are not going to do these things. And yet we struggle with them, right? I was just listening to uh, uh, some sociologist the other day who said premarital virginity among Christians and non-Christians is basically equal. Abortion rates, divorce rate. I mean, we struggle. I mean, we're struggling just at the, ease, the things that, that Blameyers was talking about up here, right? We, we struggle at those levels, just the moral code, getting to church on Sunday, those kinds of things. But we think that's what it means not to be conformed to the pattern of this world. But Paul it seems to me in Romans 12 too, is going deeper, right? He's going into the way we think. Don't be conformed to the pattern of this world. Doesn't mean just don't do bad things, but it's don't be conformed to their story. What story do you believe? Because when you boil it down, all sin is about what story you believe. Think, let's go back to Adam for a second. Don't worry, trust me, we're getting to Revelation. Let's think about Adam in the garden. Adam is given two competing stories of reality. And this happens to you every time you're tempted to sin. You are given two competing stories. So the Lord says, don't eat from this tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Trust me. 
Satan comes and tells him a different story, right? Satan says, no, 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 don't trust him. He doesn't have your best interest in mind. He's holding you back. He knows the day you eat, you're going to be like him, and he doesn't want that. No, 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 don't trust him. Trust me. Now, I got two competing stories. And Adam, of course, says, I'll trust Satan on this one. But we were just talking with our seniors today. This is exactly what happens every time we sin. Every time you're tempted, I don't care what it is, the temptation is the same. Two competing stories. This is what faith looks like in real time. Jesus says, trust me. Pick up your cross, deny yourself, follow me, and you will have not only life, but you will have abundant life. Satan comes and says, what are you thinking? Pick up your cross. That sounds like death. Jesus says, yes. Any man who seeks to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake shall save it. And Satan says, no, no, no. You will be satisfied. You will be gratified. This will make you feel good. This is what will give you life. This is what will please you. And every time we sin, we have the battle of two competing stories. And the question we have to reckon with is, what story do we believe? Our lives will reveal our story. And in a culture like ours, that is sort of a post-Christian culture, it's really difficult. Because for so long, our culture applauded us, right? Applauded Christians. Said, yay, Christians. We like Christians. I knew before, you know, I, I wanted to get my handgun permit. Now, I haven't done it. I got the paperwork, right? But I know there was a time where I thought, if I ever told them I'm a pastor, right, that would actually be, oh, you're a pastor. Hey, we can trust a pastor with a handgun. Hey, you're a pastor. You're a Christian. Today... No, 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 no. That's a, that's a slash it gives you, right? We don't have a culture anymore that applauds Christians. Now we have a culture that's fighting back against them. But the problem is, in a Christian culture, Christianized culture, you can again drop it in neutral and go with the flow and everything's fine. But as the culture shifts to be a post-Christian culture, that's where you can have your guard down and we run into real trouble. I have another quote here from a man named Leslie Newbegin. Leslie Newbegin is a Brit. He was a minister, a, a minister in Scotland and then went to be a missionary in India for maybe 30 years. Came back and became the moderator of the United Reformed Church in England. And when he came back, he started writing all these books on Christians in culture and really good, really challenging, very good. And I love what Newbegin says here because this is what I, I, the challenge we have to have as we enter in to the book of Revelation. He said, ministering in, in England is much harder than anything I met in India. There is a cold contempt for the gospel which is harder to face than opposition. I have been forced to recognize that the most difficult missionary frontier in the contemporary world is the one of which churches have been, on the whole, so little conscious. The frontier that divides the world of biblical faith from the world whose values and beliefs are ceaselessly fed into every home on the television screen. He wrote this in 1973. He says, look, the problem is Christians just don't know what's being pumped into them, right? They don't see the story that they're being saturated with. And so our default story becomes the story of our culture. I'll give you a real quick kind of silly example of this. For years, this is the first year I haven't taught Global One, Global History One. But every year for 14 years, I taught Global Studies One. And this happened accidentally. But then I start doing it every year. I, we'd start, I'd ask him, tell me about prehistoric man. This is like day one of class. We're just getting going. I said, just, let's, let's just brainstorm. Tell me about prehistoric man. Tell me, let's write up some characteristics on the board. And I wasn't thinking at the time what they might say, but all of a sudden the first one came up, stupid. Oh, okay, they're high schoolers. You know, stupid, all right, good, that's great. Uh, what else? Uh, hairy. 
Harry, okay. Harry, uh, uh, and the list are going, Harry, stupid, they grunt, they drag their mates around by the hair. I only got that one year, but I thought it was funny. They drag their mates around by the hair. They're, they, they're smelly, they're this and that. And all of a sudden, we start to draw this list on the board, and you step back and you look at it. And I say, guys, what? Now, okay, yeah, great, now they get going, right? Now they're feeding off each other. Then we're done. I say, all right, let's look at, let's look at that list. What, what we, tell me now. Just zoom out and look at prehistoric man. What's he look like? And they all say, an ape. I say, now why do you think that prehistoric man, who was created in the image of God, looked like an ape? Now I'll tell you the answer. The answer is because every show they ever watch, if they ever go to a museum, every class they've ever taken on science, tells them that that is exactly where they came from. But if I had him take a quiz, do you believe that, that, that God created man to look like it? No, no, no. Do you believe man evolved out of it? No, 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 no. He created in the image of God. But their default was he's an ape. That's just a silly example. But I remember I did it every year. I had one student one time say, that's not true. And I told him, shush, you're going to ruin my, you're gonna ruin my thing. I, got, I, I need this. I want, I want this to keep going. That's the image that we get. So, what's the need that we have then? The need that we have, and this is where Revelation is going to help us, is to be transformed in the renewing of our minds. Now, how do we get transformed in the renewing of our minds? And the answer is scripture saturation. If the reason those kids said, we look like a monkey, is because they were steeped in the television and everything else that comes at them, then we need the opposite, right? We need the opposite. We need to be steeped and saturated in Scripture, and this is where the book of Revelation is great for us. We're going to stop for coffee, going to get a break, then we're going to come back and we're going to jump in and we're going to start looking at some of the themes of this book. The book of Revelation does these three things for us. It will pull back the veil on reality. It's going to let us see the world in a way that we've not seen it before. It's going to give us God's perspective, and it's going to purge our imaginations. The book of Revelation is going to give you new categories. By, I, since I've studied the book of Revelation, I just can't see things the same anymore. You can't help it. If indeed you let yourself believe the vision that's given, then you just can't see the world the same way anymore. And that's the excitement. That's I, this book is unbelievably practical. And maybe, I don't know what your thoughts are about Revelation, but maybe you think of it as very impractical. It's just crazy. It's bizarre. It's not so bizarre. I'm not going to tame it. But we're at least going to say, hey, this is unbelievably practical for our lives. Let's take a short break since we went a little over. We had a little longer introduction. If we're going to dive into the book of Revelation, it is challenging. Look, let me just say right at the outset, this book is very challenging. All right? it, is, it is difficult, but, uh, but it's edifying. And as I said, I think it, maybe we, we give it a bad rap in that it's not practical. Part of that reason is because many people push it all out to the end times. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll look at how we approach the book here. We'll, we'll do uh, some introduction uh, today and then a little bit the beginning of next week and then we'll jump into uh, chapter one. And so what we want to do here today is zoom out and start with like a 40,000 foot view. All right, let's, get, let's get way out and try to just look at the book. The book of Revelation, we'll talk about this in a second. One thing it is, is a vision. The book of Revelation is meant to be seen. Right? In your mind's eye, it's filled, you know this, with images. Sometimes challenging images, but images. So you're meant to see it. 
In some sense, you're meant to feel it. You're meant to experience it. So it's very easy to get lost in the weeds. So maybe start here by zooming out. So we'll do a bunch of, of what I call uh, preliminary observations. That's fine. Um, and we'll start with the dominant themes. We're just gonna, I'm just picking a few. And, and what I did in this, I think I have three. It, it, we, we glob things together instead of looking at every single thing. But anything we discuss now, we're going to look at again as we go through the book. So we're going to do these preliminary things, and then we're literally just going to start. Chapter 1, not verse by verse. We don't have time, but chapter 1, and let's go. And get a hold, get a hold of the vision and, and see what uh, the Lord is doing uh, through John. All right, so we're starting with a, a 40,000-foot view. We'll look at three dominant themes that if we leave the book of Revelation and don't see these... We've, something's wrong. We've missed something, right? We're, we're, we're lost. So the first, now I have here introduction. It's revelation, not confusion. It is interesting. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ given to him by God through John, through the angel to you. It's a revelation. I think most of us, when we think, if I asked you, maybe I should have asked you, tell me what you think of when you think of the book of Revelation. For a lot of us, it is. It's bizarre. It's confusing. And yet, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. You are supposed to see Jesus more clearly on the other side of this book than you did going in. So let's, let's believe that as we, as we kind of get into it and, and expect. And if we're completely bamboozled, then maybe, maybe we're not reading it right. Okay, so the first theme is a Trinitarian vision. Now, what I, I have here is, uh, and what I handed out was what I wanted to look at. I just kind of scoured through uh, Revelation and thought about uh, this in terms of the Trinity. So let, let's, take, let's take a look at this. It's a Trinitarian vision. Now, in the very beginning, on the top of the page there, Revelation is thoroughly Trinitarian. Just going right to the very beginning of the way the letter is actually given, the, revel- the letter, the prophecy, and the vision, the way that it's given to us, it's given to us in a Trinitarian form. And when next week we look at chapter 1, we're going to see the Trinity... Uh, manifested in all sorts of different ways. But it's, it's thoroughly Trinitarian. First, it's a revelation of Christ given by the Father. Revelation 1.1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him. Which is strange. It's, a revel- it's the revelation of Christ that God gave him. So God gave the Father, God, the Father gave the Son a revelation of the Son. All right, all right, I'll have to work through that. Secondly, how does this revelation get to us or to John's readers? It gets to us through the voice of the Son. It's the Son who speaks. Right? Verse 2, who bore, uh, it's given to us, who gave him to show his bondservants the things which must shortly take place, and he sent and communicated it by an angel to his bondservant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ. The revelation is given by God, of Jesus, to Jesus, but it comes to us in the voice of Jesus. It's going to be Jesus who speaks. In verse 10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet. The voice of Jesus. We'll get there when we get to chapter 1, but the voice he hears that sounds like a voice of a, a sound of a mighty trumpet, he will turn around and what he will see is Jesus. And Jesus is speaking. So the revelation is given by the Father to the Son, it's given to us through the voice, like a sound of a trumpet, the voice of the Son. But then the words of the Son become the message of the Spirit. 
when we get into chapters 2 and 3 into the letters, Jesus will say, let the churches hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So wait, who's speaking here? Is this a revelation of the Father? Or is this a revelation from the Son? Or is this a revelation from the Holy Spirit? Well, again, this is, this is, this is uh, biblical theology, right? This is the doctrine of the Trinity, not in what we call systematic theology. Systematic theology would be, now today we're going to study the Trinity. Let's look at all the passages on the Father. Let's look at all on the Son and all on the Spirit. But, but the way it's given to us organically in the Bible is just woven right in there. You're not thinking about Trinity, and yet somehow you're getting a Trinitarian vision. You're getting a revelation from the Father, through the Son, by the way of the Spirit. And this is the way it works. The way we know God, the Father, is through the Son. In John 1.1, 1, 1, John 1.1, 1, 1, what is Jesus called? He's the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Right? Jesus is the Word. The author of Hebrews says he is the full expression and radiance of God's glory. Paul in Colossians 1 says, In him the fullness of the Godhead dwells. He is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the... How do you know God? You look at Jesus. You can't get to God behind Jesus. It's not like, well, Jesus is interesting, but I, but, but, but I want to see God. Remember, remember Philip says, show us the Father? He says, look, if you just show, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus says. And, and, and no, no one comes to the Father but through me. And, and then Philip says, well, just show us the Father. We, if you show us that, we'll be fine. And what does Jesus say to him? Philip, how long have you been with me? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. There's no God, by, you don't get to the Father behind Jesus. Jesus is the Word. He's the revelation of the Father. But how do you see Jesus? In the light of the Spirit. Again, apart from the Spirit, what do you see when you look at Jesus? A good teacher, a Jewish carpenter, a martyr. But in the Spirit, you see Jesus as the Son of God. And in seeing the Son of God, you see what the Father is really like. What is God like? How do you think of God? Look at Jesus. There he is, dying on a cross. Do you think of God that way? Or is God the angry God? Who, you know, who is God? There he is. That's the God. The God who weeps at the grave of Lazarus. The God who comes and spends time with sinners. The God who touches unclean people. That's the God he is. There's no other God behind him. This is the real God. And the way you see it clearly is in the light of the Spirit. So, whose revelation is this? It's a Trinitarian image, uh, revelation. Right from the get-go, we're getting that. Now, I just break it down here. Let's kind of, again, zooming out. One, we're going to get a view of the Trinity. But then let's just think. Let's, let's get a, a biblical vision of God. Some of these might not be in the best order. We'll see. First, the sovereignty of the Father. Now, I should just say something uh, at the outset, and that is that the order that I have here, because it's, it's, a, it's not typical order, right? Because I have the Father, the Spirit, and the Son. But uh, normally, Father, Son, Spirit. But the reason I did that was I'm taking it um, right from John's, uh, John's words. When he says, John, verse 4, chapter 1, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia... Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, i.e. the Father. Okay, John's referring to the Father there. So grace and peace to you from the Father, him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits, that is the Holy Spirit. We'll have to talk, why is he calling him the seven spirits? But uh, that's the Spirit. And also, uh, from, uh, who are the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ 
the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead. So, so John takes a very unusual pattern there. Father, spirit, son. And he does that, I believe, not because there's some deep theological significance there, but what John is doing is setting us up. He's now going to shine the light on Jesus. The rest of this is going to be, hey, he, here's Jesus. So he, you know, instead of going father, son, spirit, son, that's why he does it. So I, I'm just going to take him in this order. And let's, I'm going to rip through these, but let's think as we go, the, the vision of the triune God. First, the sovereignty of the Father. We said that the world looks, they see chaos, but when we look, we see a God seated on a throne, eternal. So A, he's the eternal and self-existent one, taking that from the way God is introduced here, right? Him who is and who was and who is to come. This is John taking the divine name in Exodus chapter 3, right? All verbs to be, except to come. We'll talk about that later. But who shall I say sent me? Uh, Moses asks the Lord, and the Lord says, I am to be. You know, I, I am. I am what I am. That's who sent you. And John is expanding that now. The one who is, and the one who was, and the one who is to come. He's the eternal and self-existent one. That name in that way appears three times in the book of Revelation and two others without to come. Well, maybe we can see why uh, down the road. Secondly, the sovereignty of the Father. He's the Lord God Almighty. He's Almighty God. He's the Omnipotent One. This title, interestingly enough, is given seven times. I, I, they're, they're all listed there for you. In that format, it is given seven times. And what we'll see, probably next week, that numbers are significant in the book of Revelation. If you've read the book at all, you don't need me to tell you this, that, that numbers are very significant. Numbers are, in the book of Revelation, a symbol like many other symbols in the book of Revelation. They do have significance. They're not a secret code but they do have significance. They are meant to tell us something, all right? So they're a symbol. So the fact that this name, and, and this is the wonder, by the way, of the book of Revelation, that the numbers of the book are not simply that they're given. The seven churches, the seven seals, the seven trumpets. And we say, aha, okay, there's some significance to that. But it's the subtlety of the book that is just amazing, and which I think reveals its divine authorship. I, you know, we can only guess as to how much of this John knew when he was writing it, how much he got and how much he didn't. But it's subtle things like that. That this name finds its place in the book seven times. It's not just that the number seven is given, but we'll see many things that just find, pop up seven times in the book or that pop up 28 times in the book or things like that, uh, um, uh, variants of seven. We'll, we'll look at that. So he's the Lord God Almighty. That is, seven, he's the fullness. He is the ultimate power. He's the Lord God Almighty who reigns. C, he's the one who sits upon the throne. This is also another divine name that is given, or divine description that is given seven times within the book. The one who sits upon his throne. This, these identifications are meant for us to meditate on, to contemplate. When your life feels like chaos... When chaos is swirling all around us, this is your story. This is your God. He's the God who is almighty, perfect, in fullness of power, who sits upon his throne. D, he's the holy one. 4.8, where we get the hymn, holy, 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 that taking from Isaiah chapter 6. Right? Holy, 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 Lord God almighty. Three times repeated. And in the, in the Bible overall, repetition is significant. We don't have exclamation marks. We don't have italics. We don't have bold print. What the writers of Scripture had for emphasis was repetition. Truly, truly, I say to you, 
right? Simon, Simon, the Satan desires to sift you. Right? These repetitions, holy, 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 three-time repetition, right? And that's given to the Lord our God. E, he's the one who, as holy, will judge the earth. No passage, I didn't list any uh, particular reference there, but the references that we will cite will be all the cycles of judgment. The cycles of the seven seals, of the seven, seven trumpets, and of the seven bowls. Now we'll talk about, when we get to the structure of the book, we'll talk about how we're to understand these cycles of seven. But in, in all of these giving of the seals and the bowls and the trumpets, they are all come from agents who are around the throne, the four living creatures, the angels who are around the throne. They are the ones that administer these acts of judgment. That is, these judgments flow from the throne of God, from the Holy One Himself. He will, and in fact is, judging the earth. And then finally, He's the creator of the world and worthy of all worship. I didn't give the verse there, but I can uh, give it to you. Uh, this is... Uh, from chapter 4, whoops, <clears throat> uh, chapter 4, verse 11. This is the scene around the throne room of God where the cre- all the living creatures and the 24 elders are all gathered and what are they singing? Worthy art thou, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power for thou didst create all things and because of thy will they existed and were created. This is our story. That's the God of this book. He's the creator of the world Anything that exists, exists because of his hand, and he deserves all worship. That's the point of that. The, the doctrine of creation is not just where did we come from. The doctrine of creation is important because it tells us who we owe our existence to, and if we owe our existence to that creator, then we owe him all our worship. And, and so gathered around the throne, there they are singing, Worthy art thou. For anything that exists, exists because you have created it and you sustain it. All right, so zooming out, just getting a glance at the book, in this Trinitarian way, we see first the sovereignty of the Father. All right, secondly, number three in the outline, because the first one was Trinitarian. Number three, the illumination of the Spirit. What do we learn about the Spirit in this book? First, he is the lamp, the lampstand before the throne. He's the lampstand before. Before the throne. This is taken from uh, 4 verse 5. Again, we're in the throne room there. Remember, we've already heard the Spirit referred to as the seven spirits. This is taken from Zechariah, where we get an image of the, of the temple. And there in the temple is the sevenfold lampstand representing the Spirit. Seven is significant. It means fullness, completeness. So the fact that he's called the seven spirits, it means he's the fullness of the Holy Spirit. He's the fullness of God in the Spirit. That's the image there. And in Revelation 4, 5, where we have this image of the throne. And from the throne proceed flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. So the Spirit is the lamp, he's the fire, he's the light, he's the illuminator. Again, how do we see Jesus? We see Jesus in the illuminating work and light of the Holy Spirit. Outside of the Spirit, we don't see it, but he is the lampstand, uh, the lamp before the fire that burns before the throne. That's one image given to him. And in that light, B, he's the means by which John sees uh, the whole vision he gets. Chapter 1 and, and uh, verse 10. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And I heard behind me a voice 
like the sound of a trumpet. So again, John gets the whole vision in the illumination of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is the means by which he gets the vision. See, he's the one who speaks to the churches. We already referenced that. Let, let him hear what the, what the Spirit says to the churches. D, he's the searching eye of Jesus Christ. Chapter 5, verse 6. This is the image, this is the image of Jesus, the lamb slain, and he's, he was slain, but he's standing. And, and when he's described, he says, I saw uh, between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb, that is Jesus, standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. I, I probably should have reversed these then to fit the order of that passage. The seven horns and the seven eyes. What, what's, what's the image there? The seven, again, here with the number seven, right? Seven, perfect and complete. The Spirit is the seven eyes of Jesus, that he, he brings the understanding. He's the searching eye of Jesus Christ. One of the things that we'll see in the churches is to each church, Jesus says, I know your deeds. I know, I, to each of the, we'll see this pattern when we get into the churches. There's a pattern in all the letters. And to each of them, he says, I, I, I know your deeds. And he's going to applaud them for some things and he's going to chastise them for other things. But the searching eye, the seven eyes, the perfect vision of the Son is the Holy Spirit. And then E, and again, I probably should have had D and E reversed. He's the extension of Christ's power into the world. Not only is it seven eyes, which are the seven spirits going out into the world, but seven horns. Now, again, when we get to Revelation 5, we can kind of break this down. So in some sense, we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. But to understand the vision of the Spirit, one, one thing, we, the horns represent power. Again, he's a lamb with seven horns. You know, it's, it's, that's an odd vision. But we're to understand what the Spirit says. He's the lamb who was slain, and yet he's standing. And he's not just standing. Oh, he's standing with seven horns, with all power, perfect and complete power. Seven eyes, perfect and complete knowledge. And what is the power and what is the knowledge? The Holy Spirit going out into the world. So the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, how does it get to you? What does the cross 2,000 years ago do with you? How does it get to you? And the answer is the Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that came and applied that redemptive power of the cross and resurrection into your life. You were once dead, but now you're alive because of the Spirit of God. Okay, so, he is, so he's the extension of Christ's power out into the world. And then F, finally, he protects the church. Now, I gave you a passage there, and I put in the parentheses the seal, because the Holy Spirit is not mentioned here, but I'll, I'll make the connection here in a second. We're in the midst of a great army being formed, and judgment is about to be poured out on the world. And this is what, uh, this is what John hears. And I saw another angel ascending from the, from the rising sun, having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels, to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. Now again, we, we can get lost in the thicket here. Now what does this seal look like? But, but Paul gives it to us in Ephesians chapter 1. How are we sealed, according to Paul, in Ephesians 1. This is where you've got to read the book of Revelation in light of the scriptures. People get into Revelation, they get all funky. 
<laughs> they just they started doing crazy gymnastics, trying to figure this stuff out, grounded in the scriptures. In Ephesians 1, Paul says we were predestined in Christ, we were redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, and we were sealed in the power of the Spirit. We were sealed. We were marked out. We were protected. We were held. He says, don't bring this judgment until all my saints are sealed. And the sealing there is of the Holy Spirit. So even though he's not mentioned here, we know what the Holy Spirit is doing. Okay, so we've got the sovereignty of the Father, the illumination of the Spirit. Fourth, the supremacy of the Son. And here, here of course, is the focus of the book. And within the Trinity, this is the way it works. The Son is the center. He's the means by which we see the Father, and he is the one that the Holy Spirit is illuminating. So it goes through Jesus Christ. We cannot leave this book without appreciating the supremacy of the Son, of the Lord Jesus Christ. This book is about him and his greatness. So let's think about a couple things. First, he is equal to the Father. He is equal to the Father. Now here I got a little typo, by the way. Um, the terms, I give, I give you two instances of this for us to think about. And by the way, little, I know, JB, you've dealt with the Jehovah's Witnesses a little bit. You know, we go to proof texts and so forth for them, and, and that's fine. Go for it. And I'm not saying this will help and there's anything, uh, um, uh, you know, some magic bullet here. But Revelation is great for this. Now, of course, it requires some ex- other explanation. But, um, but the divine titles that are given to the Father very clearly in this book are also given to the Son. Right? This isn't just, well, he's, a cre- he's, the, he's the most excellent of all the creatures. No, 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 no. No, he gets Jehovah's titles in this book. And I, I give you two uh, instances of this here. The, the typo is there, um, Alpha and Omega 118. That's 1-8. Okay, now this happens, this is great, the symmetry of the book. Because we're going to get this in the beginning and the end of the book. We're going to get a beautiful symmetry here about the divine identity of Jesus Christ. So listen to how the Father is identified in verse 8. This is God speaking. It's it's only a couple times in the book of Revelation where the Father speaks. But he does speak here in 1.8. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Now that is clearly the Father speaking there in 1.8. But then we jump down to 1.17. Now Jesus begins to speak. The voice of the trumpet comes and John turns around to look and he, he's, he's flattened. We'll see this. It's exciting to get into the vision of Jesus Christ in, in chapter 1. And when, when John sees the voice that's speaking to him, he turns around and sees this voice. And when he describes it, he falls flat, dead, before the Lord. He's just flattened and, and the Lord graciously picks him up. We'll talk about it. It's, beautiful. it's a beautiful picture, but we'll get there. I'm getting ahead of myself. Jesus then speaks to John, and here's what he says. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as a dead man. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. Here, Jesus, in 117, takes the same name that the Father took. Now, we get that at the beginning of the book, and then, as I, as I mentioned there, we get it at the end of the book. At the very end of the book, we get this same thing. The Father, in 21, verse 6. Now, we're at the very end now. We're coming into a new creation. And he said to me, this is the Father again. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, 
the beginning and the end, I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of life, of uh, water of life, without cost. So there again, the Father takes that divine name. And then in 22, verse 13, as the book is wrapping up, Jesus now speaks. This is Jesus speaking. Again, you can go back and, and confirm this, but it is Jesus speaking in 22:13, And he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. So if we can deny the divinity of Jesus Christ, but then we're going to have to deny that, this is, that the Bible is of Jesus, right? That Jesus is speaking here, that John is giving a true revelation. Because according to Jesus in this book, what you can say about the Father, you can say about him. Again, to Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That's, that's the point. And the, the second example of this uh, that I give is that he shares the Father's glory and worship. Uh, revelation chapter 5. This is when uh, um, John turns around, he sees the lamb that was slain, and, and then they fall down and they begin to praise and they begin to, uh, to worship him. And uh, this is what they say down at the very end of that chapter. And every created thing which is uh, in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. So the worship that is God's alone, the lamb shares. Right? He not only shares the divine name, but he shares the, the worship of the Father. So at a, at, a, at, a, at a simple level there, we see that he's equal to the Father. What else do we see about the supremacy of the Son? Secondly, he's the King of Kings. I'll leave these for you to look at, but one five. He's the ruler of all kings. And then uh, 1916, after, after the defeat of the uh, beast and the, and the, uh, the harlot, uh, praise rings out to him who is king of kings and lord of lords. Thirdly, what do we see of Jesus? He's the lamb of God slain for us. Uh, 5 verse 6, I turn to see the lion of the tribe of Judah and behold a, a lamb standing as if slain. Chapter 1 verse 5, he's the faithful witness. He's the faithful witness. And what we'll learn next week when we get into chapter 1, the word for witness in the Greek is marturion, from which we get the word martyr. And this is going to be very important because the call of the book, as we'll see, is for us to be faithful witnesses. So this book is challenging. You know, one of the the things I I would challenge you on is to say, we want want to get God's vision of the world, but you, you might want to just ask if you really want that vision of the world. Sometimes we like to be deluded. Sometimes we don't want to see things the way God sees them. And, and to have the call to obedience that this book will challenge us to. Because it's a, it's, a, it's a challenging but glorious call. So he's a faithful witness. He's the one, 5 verse 9, who's worthy to open the scroll of God's purpose, his plan of redemption. He's, he's the one who's worthy to do that. Why? Because he, he was slain. He's the only faithful witness. He's the only faithful image bearer of God. He's the only faithful servant. D, he's the conqueror of death. Just a beautiful passage in, in the, where he's, he lifts John off who just fell as if dead before him. And then he says, I am the living one. And I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have, I hold in my hands the keys of death and Hades. You talk about a glorious image, particularly to churches, as we'll see uh, next week, that were many of whom were going to lose their lives for the sake of this king. When Jesus commissioned his disciples to go and make disciples of all the nations, he was sending many of them to their deaths. 
Right? All, all the disciples were going to die for this faith. But the one who sends you, the one who's speaking to you, the one who stands in your midst is the faithful witness. I was dead. And behold, I'm alive forevermore. And look, I hold right here in my hands the keys to death itself. You don't need to fear death. It's a wonderful and beautiful image. E, he's the leader of a holy army of saints. You'll see that in chapter 14. God is arraying, as opposed to the army of the beasts, God arrays for himself an army of holy ones whose robes are washed in his blood. F, he's the conqueror of the beast. Chapter 19, 11 through 21. We get to the very end there as the beast is finally being judged and it's Christ who comes in the great battle of Armageddon, which is, if you go back and read it, is, uh, is um, uh, well, now let me not say it. I'll wait. Why, why give stuff away? Um, and then E, it ends with him being the church's bridegroom. There's a lot of suffering in this book. The people of God suffer greatly in this book. And in some sense, the book of Revelation is hard for us to believe because we don't suffer. We live very well in America and in the West. Suffering may be coming. I think we all kind of feel the, the tide turning a little bit here, right? I was just telling uh, my, my class today as we were talking about John 15. We're doing apologetics and we're talking about John 15. Jesus says, the world hated me. They're going to hate you too. They persecuted me. They're going to persecute you. You're not, you're not greater than your master. And... Um, I said, we may not feel that, you know, now. Maybe we do a little bit. But we don't feel it like our brothers and sisters in Syria who have right now swords to their throats saying, you either convert to Islam or you die. Right? They, they, when Jesus says, I, I, hold, I hold death in my hands, right, that's a, to them, just, I don't want to let this book go. To us who have it so good, who have to tell ourselves about suffering, because we don't really suffer for the gospel. It, it takes, it takes uh, a little more work here. But there's a lot of suffering in this book. And I told, I told them, you know, we're not going to, and this is the practicality of the book. It, it will not be long, I think, even in our neck of the woods. This is where it would happen, if it's going to happen, where we start to see churches challenged on their, on their ideas of gay marriage, when a church won't hold, won't hold a, uh, a service and a pastor won't do it. And yeah, we have the First Amendment, and, and that's good, and that'll work for a while. But in a state like New York, I don't know how long. And all of a sudden, tax statuses start getting taken away. You know, that, that's the kind of stuff. And so we, who knows? We may, we may start to feel this um, more and more within our culture. So there's a lot of suffering. But then it wraps up in this beautiful way, in this last image, that Christ, the supremacy of Christ, is seen not only in his being a king and a, a conqueror, but he's a bride. This has been a production of the Dwark Hill Study Center. All our lectures and classes are available for free streaming or for purchase on CD and download at dwarkhill.org. Please visit our website to receive more information regarding the Study Center and upcoming events and to view articles and blogs from our contributors.